Good morning, everyone. There we go. That's good. Uh, It's so good to be uh, with you here this morning. My name's Joe, if you don't know me. I'm the acting campus pastor out here at the Ridge. It's uh, good to be here with you, particularly a warm welcome if you're visiting us. Um, Just great to have you. We've been going through our tough uh, question series over the last five weeks. This is our fifth week of our seven-week series. Um, And we've just been unpacking that and dealing with some real tough questions that are posed to the Christian faith. Well, the first week we uh, asked, asked and answered the question, how can we be sure God exists? The second week we discussed evolution and, and science and does that contradict Christianity? Uh, we, the third week we spoke about whether or not we can trust the Bible because it's often posed that it's full of contradictions and mistakes. So how did we deal with that? Last week we uh, spoke about Jesus. Uh, where the question is, is, oh, we know Jesus is a good man, but why try and make him the son of God too? And this week we tackle what someone put on the, the Sterling website, a monster of a question. Um, how, can, uh, how, how can a good God allow suffering or does he simply not care? And I feel like we've dealt with it so much already this morning uh, that I don't even need to preach. So amen, let's go home. Uh, it's great. Uh, but the question is there to be asked and answered. But we, we find ourselves in a bit of a situation where we've got a real tough question to answer. And one that is asked regularly, probably out of all the questions posed to the Christian faith, this is one that is asked the most frequently. And I think the reason for that is because uh, everyone suffers right? Everyone goes through hardships. And so when it's asked, it's asked by everyone at some point in their life, uh, non-believers and believers ask the question, how can God allow this to happen? Why would he allow that to happen? So it's a really important question that we need to learn how to answer as believers, particularly because we are going to be asked this by our non-Christian friends, families, and colleagues. But what's important here is we need to understand when is the right time to answer this question. And I think this is, this is important for us to grasp, is that when someone is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, and they ask the question, how can God allow this to happen? What they are asking, church, is they aren't asking for a philosophical discussion on why God allows it to happen. But really underlying in that question is, man, can you help me? Can you comfort me? Can you be here for me? I'm hurting. And so our response to someone in the midst of suffering who asks us that question needs to go something along those lines. That is a fantastic question. Let's pick that up at some later point. I don't think what you need right now is a philosophical discussion on suffering. But how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I be there for you? Does that make sense? Man, we're not saying we aren't going to ask the question. We're just saying... Right now, this is not what you need. And you might be saying, but Joe, they're questioning God. They're pushing God away. Don't worry. God's big enough to be able to deal with that. In, in fact, it's, this is a, this is a, a big uh, uh, biblical principle that James talks about in James 2 verses 15 to 16. He says the uh, following. He says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has found no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Man, to say something, this is why God allowed you to suffer is not going to in any way help them out. What's going to help them is your love. What's going to help them is the way you serve. And so we see that in 1 John 3, 18 and 19. It says, dear children, let not merely... Uh, 
let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. And the biggest testimony that you're going to be able to give to your non-Christian friends who are suffering is not a philosophical discussion, but the love that you give to them. That's where you're going to show the truth of Christ. So that's just important as, as we uh, gear up to this question and, and trying to come to a, a landing on how God can allow this. Just be careful that you don't just dive into that when your non-Christian uh, friends, or even your Christian friends, ask you, how can God allow this to happen to me? Love them first. Answer the question later. So, but we are here to answer the question. That's why we're here, to answer these tough questions. And so let's give it a go. A number of people have uh, tried to answer this question. And let me just explain the problem that is found here. Is, uh, there are three biblical truths that we have. Um, and that is, one, that God is good. He's a, that means he's pure, he's holy, and he wants to get rid of anything that is against him. Anything that's not holy, anything that is sinful or evil, God despises it, he hates it, and he wants to get rid of it. The second biblical principle is that God is great, and that means he's all-powerful, and he is able, if in his own strength, to be able to get rid of anything that opposes and challenges him. But the third biblical truth is that evil exists. Evil is around. Do you see the problem here? Is that if God was truly great... I mean, truly good, he would be able to see the evil and he would be want to get rid of it. If he was truly great, then he could have the power to do so and would be forced and compelled by his goodness to get rid of it. But evil is still around. Evil is still here. So people have tried to come up with various solutions to deal with this. And I, I say solutions in, in brackets because they fall short, and we're going to try to answer those solutions. And the first solution that people have tried to come up with is to deny God. The argument goes, if God was good and great, evil would not exist, but evil exists, therefore God must not exist. This is probably the most common um, answer that is given towards the uh, suffering of evil. Let's just deny that God exists altogether, because he would not allow evil to happen. But there's a major problem that comes with this, and I want you to have your thinking caps on here. Just this is a little bit of a tough one, the rest gets simpler. Is the major problem for this one is if you throw out God, you also throw out the meaning of evil. In other words, if we have a universe that has no God in it, we have a universe that has no higher standard of morals in which we must live by. Does that make sense? We have no higher standard in which we are able to judge right or wrong, but all we are left with are human preferences. All we are left with is what you think is right and what I think is right. Nothing more than that. In other words, I might not think rape and murder might not be my cup of tea, but it might be somebody else's. But because there's no higher standard in which to judge things by, what happens is, who gets to say that you're wrong and who gets to say that I'm wrong? We don't. And we just left with human preferences. What I feel is right and what you feel is right. There's this guy, he was a serial killer. His name was uh, Ted Bundy. You might have heard of him. Prior to his execution, he argues a very similar thing. He says the following. He says, I learned that all moral judgments are value judgments. That all values are subjective. And that none can be proved to be either right or wrong. 
I have discovered that to become truly free, truly unfettered, I had to become truly uninhibited. I quickly discovered that the greatest obstacle to my freedom, the greatest block and limitation to it, consists in the insupported value judgment that I was bound to respect the rights of others. Surely you would not, in the age of scientific enlightenment, declare that God or nature has marked some pleasures moral or good and others immoral or bad. Essentially, he's saying, is saying that because there's no God to give us a standard, because we are enlightened in a scientific age, we just say there is no God, therefore there's no higher standard. All you're saying is your view is better than my view. And how dare you say that? Who gets to say that? And this is a man that lived out that philosophy by raping and murdering 30 women and girls. This is what happens if we throw out our God altogether. We throw out the meaning of evil. And all we are left with is what you say is right and what I say is right. And you might say to me, but oh, Joe, we can get together as a society. And we can together as a society put laws and, and codes together and that can be what we live by. But but church, that is just, again, codified human preferences. Just stuff that we together have done that. And you might say, well, well that will uh, put out the evil. No, no, no. Societies as a whole have gone wrong. Nazi Germany, as an example. South Africa in our apartheid system. Uh, Saddam Hussein and killing of the Kurds. Societies as a whole have gone ast astray. And who are we then to look at Nazi Germany and say, you've got wrong because it's all about our preferences over theirs. If there's no God, there's no higher moral standard. And what we do is we throw out the meaning of evil, just what you think and what I think. So in actual fact, what happens is if there is no God, there is no evil. But 100% of us would agree, except for but crazy loony like Ted uh, Bundy, we would all agree that evil exists. So if evil exists, it becomes a strong argument that God exists. And instead of evil being a, a, an apologetic against God, evil becomes an apologetic that God does exist. So that, that is the first solution. It just it holds no weight. If you throw out God, you throw out the meaning of evil. But we all agree evil exists. So in, all, in that case, evil must be there. The second one, and this, it gets a little more simpler than that, I promise. The second one is we make evil a part of God. This comes from Eastern philosophy. And we'll go through these quickly. Um, this is the idea. This comes from like Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, they argue that everything is a part of God. And as a result of that, evil is a part of God as well. But this becomes problematic because now we're saying we need to pursue, follow, and love something that is evil. And that just becomes something that we can't really do. We can't deify evil. It just it doesn't hold any weight either because now we must become that very thing, become like that very thing, which is evil. The second, I mean, sorry, the third one is we must diminish God's power. This is quite a strong one with liberal theologians. They say, uh, God really, really wants to get rid of evil. He just can't. He just doesn't have the power to do so. He, he just can't do it. He just, he, no matter what he wants to do, he just can't. He's, a, he's a, a being that is changing and growing over time. 
and he's becoming, he's learning as he goes along and he's trying to figure this out. Through the power of persuasion, he's doing his very best to try rid evil and get rid of it. This is quite a strong one in uh, liberal theologians. We've got a couple of problems with this. The first one is, uh, this is contrary to what the, the Bible teaches, <laughs> all right? One uh, Chronicles 29 verse 11, uh, it says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours. It's also contrary to week one when we spoke about God being great, that he simply just spoke and creation came into being. He's a, he's a powerful God that made everything out of nothing. It's contrary to that as well. But also, and probably the most frightening is this, if God has no power to defeat evil and he is constantly changing, there's, a couple, there's two things here. One, how do we know that in a thousand, thousand, thousand million years, that he isn't suddenly going to change and become evil himself and torture us for all of eternity. We just don't know. He's a, he's a changing being. Secondly, if he is, doesn't have the power, how do we know that he's actually going to win? How do we know he's going to be victorious? And why follow a God that's not going to be victorious? And if we look at society, it doesn't seem like God is really doing a good job then because it seems to be getting worse rather than getting better. So, man, diminishing God's power is just not right as well. Just doesn't hold to scripture, doesn't hold to the rest that we know about God. And quite frankly, if that is who he is, why serve him? Because he might not win at the end of the day. The last one, and, this, and we'll go through this one quick as well, is that we diminish God's goodness. So people say, okay, fine, we can't take away God at all. We can't make evil a part of God. We can't limit his power. But how about we just say that God isn't good? We, we go along the, the arguments and saying, um, man, he, he can destroy evil, but he just doesn't want to. He doesn't care. The problem with this is, and the problem with us as humans as a whole, is what happens when we go through hardships, what often happens is we forget about the good things that God has done in our lives, right? It's in the midst of trial and suffering that we forget about the blessing. It's often in drought that we forget that rain is the norm. It's often in flooding that we forget that that isn't the norm. It's often when we hear about a sickness or terminal illness that we forget about the years and years of good health that we have had up until that point. And so there is this idea of going, well, if evil is meant to prove that God is not good, what happens then about all the good stuff? What happens about life? Beauty, joy, happiness. Man, those things become evidence that God is good. Some theologians will call it the problem of good because that just shows that he must be good. And so we can't look at those areas and those things and say, man, God must be evil, but rather when we look at our lives as a whole, God is, is good. So those are our, our four solutions that just don't necessarily hold any weight they might sound good, but when you start digging into them, man, they just, they just fall short. And may I just say that last one there as well? Um, you might outrightly dismiss that, but that is probably our default setting when we suffer. It's when we go through hardships, we question God's goodness. Lord, why did you let that happen? Do you really care? 
is, and it's natural to come to that point, but again, that's why the psalmists and, and scripture encourages us to constantly be thankful, constantly think of the good that he has done, remind ourselves, man, praise the name like we've done this morning, just giving testimony to the goodness of God. It helps remind us in the midst of suffering that God is good. And so we need to do that. So my suggestion um, would be is how do, we, how do we answer this question best? And the best way for us to do this, church, is to live in the tension of the fact that God is good, He is great, but evil still exists. We need to live in that tension that those things do fit together. And it's all right for us to do that. I think sometimes we wish that we could have a lovely little bow in which we can take suffering on and put it on and go, that's the answer. And some of us might not be satisfied with that, but it's far easier for us to live in the tension of these things than to start going and picking one away. So as soon as we take an element away, it falls horribly short. And it's okay for us to say to our friends, man, I'm not too sure about everything. And they might not be happy with that. And that's okay, because if we are honest too, we're not always happy about suffering as well. So that's fine. But having said that, there are some practical thoughts in which we can think about, in which must give us some clarity to this idea of suffering. I have a, I used to have a Fiat Punta. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. If you are considering to buy one, do not buy one. <laughs> and it was a horrible car. And, I did, and my brother-in-law in Durban had one as well, and it gave him endless troubles. They just are cars that will just take your wallet and empty it. Mine was already empty, and it emptied it more. Uh, with so many things that was wrong with it. But one of the many things that my Fiat had wrong with it was uh, that the headlights were pathetic. Uh, when it was nighttime, they maybe... On, besides for brights, but on just normal, uh, normal uh, headlights on this on, it would maybe shone 10, 15 meters at best. And there was pitch black after that, which, which seems, ah, oh, that's quite a distance, Joe. Not when you're traveling at a speed. Things come at you very, very quickly because the headlights weren't great. And it was particularly bad if there were no street lights around, that it was just dark. Um, and if it was raining, it was even worse. In Ganubi Main Road, when I was getting fixed at the time when I had the car, and it's a long concrete road and had tons of beacons, and it made it very tricky getting home because I would drive, and there suddenly was swerving between beacons, and you couldn't really see far ahead, and every day it changed because they were working on it. So it was always like an obstacle course. Am I going to make it alive home or not? And, um, and one of the things I learned was this, that when I... When I was driving home, if there was another car that was near me, I would let them go in front of me. Then I would stick really close to their bumper because it would mean that I could follow them. I trusted that their headlights were good enough and they weren't drunk and uh, they were driving and I could just follow them. And so when they swerved and started moving, I just swerved and followed them. It was a, it was a great way to get home and I could trust, man, they can see things. And I'll tell you that silly illustration because while there might be this darkness around this idea of suffering, there are definitely some points of lights in which we can follow on the way home through this. It might not give us utmost clarity, but man, it's going to help us to get home. It's going to help us to be able to get through this idea of suffering. Does that make sense? There's some tail lights we're going to follow, and we're going to look at some of those tail lights here that might just give us 
a little bit more clarity on, on what's, what's happening. The first one is the world is um, as Jesus predicted. The world is as Jesus predicted. We see in, in John 16 verses 33, he says, I have told you all of this so that many of you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it, right? I'm glad he doesn't. There are many other sects and cults that would tell you otherwise. Man, Christian science would argue that if you follow their process and go through their program, life is going to be great and successful. There, there is a new age um, gurus will tell you this. You would have heard of it. Mind over matter. Just a picture and, and come to think hard and focus on your own reality and what you want and it will come into being. You just need to think about it. Man, there's even in the Christian circles of preachers that we hear on TV that preach a false prosperity gospel that preach a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. Man, if you just have enough faith, church, if you just believe God will never let you be sick, He will get you what you want. And they preach us these things and, and we hear them and we go, man, I must just do that and I can have a successful, prosperous life. But the problem with this is, is that Jesus predicted that there will be sorrows, that there will be pain, that we will go through hardship. And I feel so sorry for these people because when it comes around as Jesus predicted, they find themselves hopeless and often full of guilt, blaming themselves. Of, of things that they had no control over going, it was my fault because I did not have enough faith that I have not been healed or that I'm sick. Or I did not focus hard enough on my own reality that it has become something else that I do not want. And they've got guilt ridden and they beat themselves up for a stage in their lives that was not the case. It was not their faults. But Jesus comforts us in a strange way by going, you will suffer. You will go through it. And, and may I just speak to the Christian here at the moment. Jesus was confident enough that his own deity and who he was was not going to be challenged by suffering, that he was willing to talk about it. He was willing to go, man, you will suffer. He wasn't concerned that that would disprove him. Jesus predicted it. And we know it's coming. We can be forewarned about it. The, the second one is the second point of light for us is that evil was not created or caused by God. Evil was not created or caused by God. All right? What God did was he created us as humans with the ability to love him or not to love him. He created us with the option of going, I can love God or I can follow God or I do not want to. And so in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decide to eat of the fruit, where they decide to not follow and love God, but rather follow themselves, what they do is they actualize evil. So when God created that possibility of love, he created the possibility of not love. Because forced love is not real love, right? Forced love isn't. It's when someone chooses to love us. That's when true love is there. So, so God gave us the option to choose to love him. But we as humans always never choose to love God, but we choose to follow ourselves. And in doing so, we've actualized a potential for evil that was there. We have caused evil to come about. And so as a byproduct of this cause is the next one, is that most of our human suffering 
comes as a result of us choosing not to follow and love God. A lot of the sin, a lot of the hurt, a lot of the destruction comes as a result of us choosing not to follow God. And so there's a, there's a commonly estimated figure that comes around. It says about 90% of all human suffering is a result of, um, a, 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 of world suffering is a result of human cause. We cause it ourselves. Not God. We do. The other 10% is the next, is the next uh, point, and that is we live in a fallen world, but as a result, as a byproduct, again, of us choosing not to follow God, we see in Genesis 3, what happens is God curses the ground. He curses nature. And as a result, nature as well is longing for the day to come when Christ will come back and restore it to its goodness. It was a byproduct of our sin that God cursed the ground and nature as a result is causing loads of damage. We see this in um, Romans 8 verses 19 to 21. It says this. It's not on the board, but you can hear it. It says, all creation is waiting eagerly for the day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it would join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And I just want to give us a bit of a warning here. Is often when it comes to natural disasters, and I see this, um, I see this uh, online, and when there's droughts, and when there's tsunamis, and when there's earthquakes and all that kind of stuff, sometimes we have the tendency to point fingers at other nations or other societies or cities and we go, this has happened because of your sin. And while there is a biblical element to this that God does sometimes use that, it is dangerous for us to assume that is always the case. Church, it's dangerous for us to play God and point out other people's sin. And often, when it happens in our area, to us, we never look at our sin. It's only usually when it happens elsewhere. Oh, you better repent, and then it will rain. And there's a danger to play that. Man, Jesus warns us about this in Luke, um, in Luke 13. I'm just trying to find it. Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. It, it warn, he warns us about that. Do we talk? Disciples are asking, what, did this happen because of their sin? Did this happen? And Jesus uses the example of 12 people dying when a tower collapsed. And he goes, don't say it was because of the sin. It happens. And it's unfair on the people who are going through the suffering, who have lost loved ones and are mourning. And we go, oh, yeah, it was because of their sin that that happened. Be, be careful to play God, church. Just, just a warning there. Just a warning. Um, the next one, and I hope these become a little bit more encouraging to you, is that God will finally judge evil. Man, he's going to. He promises us that there will come a day when this evil in this world is going to be destroyed. He promises us that he's going to come again and he's going to reestablish a rule on this earth. That there's going to be peace, that there's going to be a new world order, that he's going to be our king in which we're going to worship and praise in a world that there's going to be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering anymore. Revelations 21 talks about this beautiful world in which we are going to be in as he establishes a new world order as the preeminent king who's going to bring peace. He's going to do it. There's going to be a judgment day where all those who are evil and have not been covered by the blood of Christ are going to give an account of what they have done. He's going to do it. 
But the Bible graciously reveals how merciful God is. And it says this in Exodus 34 verses uh, 6 to 7. God says this to Moses, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and righteousness. I, love it. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I, I forgive iniquity, rebe- rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. David will say in the psalm, he says, You, O God, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. God is slow to anger, but why? Man, Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, the promise of him coming back again. His promise of him coming and establish righteous rule of, et- of eternal peace. See, this promise is not slow in keeping this promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting to perish, but not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason why God is taking his time against the rebellion against him, against the sin that is there, that the goodness that he, he, he has, that, that sin that is against his goodness, that power, the reason why he's holding back his power and destroying it is because he's wanting many to come to know him. Man, thank the Lord he didn't come back a hundred years ago because none of us would be here. Thank the Lord that he didn't come back 14 years ago because I had not given my life to the Lord yet. But he has been patient because he wants many to come to know him. Many to experience the fact that there will be a day of peace and no more mourning and no more crying. He wants us as many as possible to be there. And so he's patiently waiting and waiting to come back until he determines the time is right. And so suffering occurs not because he likes it but rather because he's holding off patiently for the day when he will return to get rid of evil. The next one is God suffered too. God suffered too. A gospel is about a savior who came and suffered for you and me. The gospel is about a a king of kings, a lord of lords who is getting praised in all eternity, who would humble himself and come and be as a man. As theologians call it, the humiliation of Christ. That the king who, who deserves to be praised for all eternity would come down as a baby to be subjective to the very world in which he created. If he came back as the established king of the world and was not seen as God, it would still be humiliating and became as a carpenter's son where he would be ridiculed and mocked, where he would suffer loss, where he would lose his father at a young age, where he would be persecuted by the very people in which he came to save. They would take him into a false trial, ridicule him, beat him beyond recognition, put a crown of thorns into his head, nail him to a cross as he died in excruciating pain. He suffered. And on that cross, not only did he die of physical suffering, but he experienced an emotional and spiritual suffering which we will never understand. As the guilt and shame of all people was placed upon his shoulders, of the prostitute, of the pedophile, of the rapist, of the murderer, was placed upon him, he felt that guilt and shame in which we have never experienced in our lives. And then experienced a, a spiritual removal, a forsaking of the Father, of being one with him and the father turned his face away, a spiritual depth and removal which we could never understand. He suffered and he died and he rose again. But church, he suffered so that we might not suffer. 
He suffered so that one day we can know the Father and experience the fullness of His glory in all eternity. He suffered so that we would be in peace and in bliss and paradise for all eternity. He suffered so that we might not suffer. That's the beauty of the gospel. Beauty of the gospel. And, and the great part about that is, while that might be a future hope, we are comforted by the fact that we have an all-powerful Savior who loves us so dearly that He would die on the cross for us, but also that He has experienced suffering like you and I have. He has lost. He has hurt. He has wept. He has been forsaken. He has had nothing. And so when we approach His throne with pleas for help, when we approach His thrones and the prayers that we were talking about, Lord, help me, comfort me, be here for me. He comes as a Savior and as a God who is not far and distant and removed from our suffering, but has experienced it Himself. It's beauty of our gospel, that Christ knows what we're going through because He Himself has gone through it. And lastly, God can bring good out of bad. Romans 8 verses 28 says, He has caused all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and accord according to His purpose. And there's just a, a little understanding there that we need to understand. It's not for all people, for those who love Him and according to His perp- accord according to His purpose. And we don't have time, so if you go to Bible study, maybe you can explain and discuss the following. But I'm just going to read through them, some of the things that God can do. Is He can use pain to deepen our character. He can use pain to reshape us as his sons and daughters. He can use pain to give us a more spiritual and eternal perspective. He can use pain to protect us from ourselves. I'm just going to stop there and pause there. Leprosy is a disease that means that your nerve endings disappear. And what happens in the big problem with lepers is, is that they kick their toes, snub their toes, and they just don't know it's happened. If we had leprosy in our day and age and we were at home and I had left the hot plate on and say Alyssa had leprosy, she'd be able to put her hand on the hot plate and not know it's there. And her body would be damaged. God has allowed us to have pain sometimes to protect us from ourselves. Pain is not always bad, but can be used for good. He can use pain to grab our attention and teach us uh, and teach or redirect us in ways that will impact Uh, be important in our lives and lastly he can use pain to lead us to himself my grandmother suffered with multiple sclerosis for 14 years and uh, it was tough on her it's about 12 years longer than an average person suffers with it it's usually a lot quicker and near the end of her life she said to my grandfather in a once conversation my suffering has brought me closer to christ my suffering has brought me back to jesus That was, my suffering has brought me back to Jesus. Thank God for her MS. That she would suffer, that she would come back to Christ. That she would suffer and remember again that Jesus is Lord. That she would suffer and experience and understand the suffering of her Savior so that one day she would not have to suffer because of it. Church, we can't wrap suffering in a bow. We just can't. It's not an easy one. But we have a Savior who is great. We have a Savior who is our comforter. And we have a Savior who is going to be victorious. He's going to be. 
He's coming back again. He is. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we will have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. And that is because of our suffering Savior Jesus, who's coming back as a victorious king. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have called us to something so much bigger than ourselves. We're so grateful that this God who is, who is all-powerful, who is a mighty, who is sovereign, looked upon us when we've rebelled against you and loved us so much that even though we, we went and did evil things, that you would send your son Jesus to come and be subjective to our evil, suffer for us and die on the cross. We are so grateful that for we have a suffering servant, Jesus, who died and suffered so that we one day will not have to suffer. We are so grateful that we have a God who knows and understands our suffering. And so, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself more and more to us. I pray particularly for those, Lord, that are hurting this morning. That you would just show them your love and your comfort. Would you help us as a church to be a people that love well? That we would be able to take care of those who, who are hurting, to be there as our, their support, to point them to you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us perspective on on what you are doing. But if you don't, Lord, that we would just have a, a faith to know that you are good, that you love us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.